Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A woman on her way to work never shows up for her shift. Her friends and family frantically search for her, but someone, right under their noses, knows something. This is Method and Madness, Episode 13, The Murder of Savannah Gold. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Jacksonville, Florida, August 2017. A young woman says goodbye to her mom and heads to her shift at a local restaurant. Within an hour, panic sets in as her parents receive texts that she's run off with her new boyfriend. They knew these texts were not from their daughter. Turns out, they were right. And footage from a surveillance camera would lead to the truth. Let's dive in. Savannah Page Gold was born April 26, 1996, to parents Sherry and Daniel Gold. She was the younger sister of Chris, who described his sister as a perfectionist, someone who was passionate about anything she put her heart into. Savannah grew up dancing, creating art, and had a love for sports, particularly lacrosse, where she was a very skilled athlete and played for two national all-star teams while attending Mandarin High School in Jacksonville. She also attended Douglas School of the Arts for Technical Theater. She was confident, independent, and compassionate, not only toward other people, but she was a dedicated animal lover who had once rescued a kitten from the road and took it in as her pet. After graduating high school, Savannah was granted academic, athletic, and arts scholarships to the Savannah College of Arts and Design, but put her educational plans on hold as her mom was battling stage 4 colon cancer, surviving surgeries and chemotherapy, and Savannah wanted to stay home to be a caregiver. Savannah and her mom were the best of friends, and it was no surprise to anyone that she wanted to be there for her mother during such a difficult time. Savannah lived in Jacksonville and worked at the Bonefish Grill, a chain seafood restaurant located on San Jose Boulevard. She worked there as a server starting in late 2016, and her outgoing nature made it easy to make new friends at her job. August 2nd, 2017, a Wednesday. 21-year-old Savannah got ready for work that afternoon putting on her bonefish grill uniform of black shoes, black pants, and a white chef's jacket, which she wore with pride. She walked out of the house that she shared with her mom and dad and into the hot, muggy Florida air, which she was used to. She walked out to her car and passed her mom in the front yard. They said goodbye to each other, and Savannah said, I love you, before getting into her Kia and driving the five miles to work to begin her shift at 5.30 p.m., Savannah enjoyed working and was the type of server that customers remembered after paying their bill, for Savannah gave off that kind of warmth that was hard to forget. That evening, however, about an hour after her shift would have begun, Dan Gold received a strange text from his daughter Savannah, which said, Hey, I just wanted to tell you and mom I met a really great guy and we're running away together. I love him and we're leaving tonight. I'll call you later when we get to where we're going. Now, any parent would become understandably concerned 
receiving this sort of message from their child, even an adult child, particularly if their child is dependable and fairly predictable. Dan immediately showed the text to his wife, who felt the hairs on the back of her neck stand up. She knew that if Savannah were going to send a message like that, it wouldn't have been sent to her dad. It would have been sent to her mom, who she was closest with, and who she texted with off and on, all day, every day. Further, the message was not written the way Savannah usually sent messages. The tone was off, and it was riddled with misspellings and lacked punctuation. Minutes later, Savannah's brother Chris also received a text from his sister that read, Hey, I quit. I'm leaving with my boyfriend. I can't do this shit anymore. I'm fine. Just want to get away. This message, like the one sent to Savannah's father, was filled with misspellings and didn't sound like Savannah. And why would Savannah get dressed in her work uniform, cheerfully say goodbye to mom, and head to work, only to send a cold goodbye an hour later, that she was running away with someone randomly? It certainly didn't add up. The Golds called Savannah and texted her back but couldn't reach her, so they contacted the Bonefish Grill and learned that Savannah hadn't shown up that evening for her 5.30 shift. A quick search of the parking lot turned up Savannah's car. Her Kia was there, parked behind an ATM machine. The doors were unlocked, and inside was Savannah's purse, money, and her ID. Her phone, however, was missing, and one of her tires was slashed. Now it was time to get the police involved. Savannah was reported missing, and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department began investigating. They tried pinging her phone, but it appeared to have been turned off, which made it impossible to locate. Family members, friends, and employees of the Bonefish Grill were interviewed, and loved ones began making missing persons posters, getting the word out. They continued to call and text Savannah in hopes that she would respond to someone, but nobody heard back. Not only was it unlike Savannah to run off with a strange man, but it was out of character to miss a shift of work. She was a very reliable employee, and the slashed tire didn't add up to someone who had willingly left town. It indicated something sinister. At the time, Savannah's mother Sherry had said to reporters, quote, Somebody's terrorizing her. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like something is going on. Nobody could argue with Sherry Gold's intuition. Who runs off and leaves their purse and money behind? Police were following up on all leads and had conducted two different searches of two of Savannah's friends' homes and found nothing. Savannah's co-worker, Lee Ridarty, who she had met at the Bonefish Grill, he was a culinary manager there. He was a 28-year-old man that she'd had an on-again, off-again romantic relationship with. He was interviewed, but he told police that he had not been in touch with Savannah for a while. Their last communication had been via text two or three weeks prior, as they weren't currently dating. And he was helpful in the search, hanging up missing posters throughout the restaurant and telling Savannah's father that he wished for the best possible outcome. Savannah's best friend, Viryana Jaraj, had spoken to her the afternoon before she went missing and said she was happy and the two were planning a night out soon. Viryana wasn't buying that a sudden romance had occurred and said, quote, She has not met any boy, and if anybody would know, it would be me or her mom. 
Despite Savannah's friends' and family's efforts to make sense of things, they just couldn't think of anyone that would have harmed her. Was this a random incident? Was she simply a victim of opportunity in the wrong place at the wrong time? Nobody wanted to believe the worst, but in those first couple of days, it was a race against the clock to find her. The disappearance made national news. The missing posters distributed far and wide with two photos of Savannah describing her as a missing person, 21 years of age, 5'1", 100 pounds, with blonde hair and brown eyes. By all accounts, the last person that had seen Savannah was her mother that afternoon, but police knew that someone else must have seen her. Someone knew something. The Bonefish Grill was located in one of those large strip malls where you can go to the gym, nail or hair salon, and grab a dinner at a restaurant all in one stop. Situated on a highway, the location itself was anything but remote. San Jose Boulevard was scattered with businesses, grocery stores, and any retail establishment you could want. And this particular parking lot was always full of cars, especially after 5 p.m. when families would start heading out to dinner. So when Savannah disappeared that evening, it was a real head-scratcher. How does someone arrive at work in a busy location during rush hour in broad daylight without anyone seeing where she went? Well, it turns out she was seen by someone. And as will be revealed soon, Savannah's final moments would be captured by a witness, a witness that never lies. That Saturday, three days after Savannah's disappearance, police brought Lee Radarty, the on-again, off-again boyfriend, in for a second interview. He had a warrant out due to driving with a suspended license, and, well, his story about how he hadn't been in touch with Savannah for a few weeks didn't pass the sniff test. The police needed some clarification. Lee, at 5 feet 11 inches and 163 pounds, entered the interrogation room wearing his bonefish grill uniform, a black chef's coat, which he was asked to remove, and black pants. He sat down to speak with two detectives, and a simple question from officers kicked things off. How long have you known Savannah? That opened the floodgates. With that one question, Lee spoke uninterrupted for approximately six minutes, telling an unusual amount of details regarding his relationship with the missing woman, from when they met eight months prior, when Savannah began working at the restaurant, to the nature of their relationship, that they would hang out, drink beers, watch movies, to how his girlfriend Chelsea reacted with jealousy to him hanging out with Savannah. Lee claimed that as he began spending more time with Savannah, she began getting heavily into drugs, so much so that he took a step back, saying that his parents had been addicts while he was growing up. His mother was often on meth, and he didn't want to go through that again. He told police that he had taken pain pills occasionally with Savannah, but that she was getting into more serious drugs like heroin, and he didn't want anything to do with that. According to him, she eventually went to get help and detoxed herself for a few days. He was optimistic that she was doing better. While telling of his relationship with Savannah, Lee was painting himself as the good guy, trying to get his friend off drugs and painting Savannah as a troubled woman with an addiction. 
a, a version of Savannah that was the polar opposite of how friends and family and even her customers at the restaurant were describing her. After Lee's six-minute monologue on how long he had known Savannah, police asked him a question that he'd been asked the day before during their first interview at Bonefish Grill. When was the last time you were in contact with Savannah? Lee repeated that they had texted two to three weeks ago. Moments later, he began the first of what would be many different versions of his story. Lee now told police that the last time he saw Savannah was Wednesday afternoon, and he apologized for lying to them when they had interviewed him the day earlier. Since Wednesday, of course, was the last day anyone had heard from Savannah, this was of particular interest to the investigating officers, who were incredulous that Lee had not been forthcoming about this information during their first chat. Lee said that on that Wednesday afternoon, knowing that Savannah would be reporting to work at 5.30 p.m., he drove to the Bonefish Grill, backed into a parking spot, and waited for her to arrive. Savannah pulled into the parking lot at 5.30 and parked a few spaces away from Lee's silver Chevy Malibu. Next, she got out of her car and walked over to his. Savannah spoke with Lee for a while, standing outside his driver's side window while he sat inside the car. He told officers that Savannah confessed to him that she had just done heroin and was, quote, feeling paranoid, so she got into his back seat so nobody could see her. The nature of their conversation seemed contentious. Lee was there in the parking lot with one mission. He wanted Savannah to stop spreading rumors about the nature of their relationship. Since she was a server and he a manager, it was a conflict of interest that could cause him to be fired. Further, he was dealing with Chelsea, his other on-again, off-again girlfriend. Apparently, Savannah had been lying to friends and coworkers saying that she and Lee were dating, and that was getting back to Chelsea, who was in turn angry at Lee. Lee continued to tell police that while in the car, he pleaded with Savannah to not say anything else to anybody, to stop telling people that they were sleeping with each other. In response, Lee said Savannah was adamant, angrily so, that she was going to do whatever she wanted, included going to management to tell them everything. She then exited his car and started walking away with her cell phone in her hand. And minutes later, a green pickup truck pulled into the parking lot and Savannah got right in. Lee said he didn't get a good look at the driver, but that they were wearing a baseball cap and it appeared Savannah knew them. After providing this account of the last time he saw Savannah, police were rightly suspicious about why he had hidden this from them. What was a huge detail, quite significant in the case of a missing person. And he explained it away, saying that he had a warrant out for an unpaid traffic ticket and had been scared to put himself there, to put himself at the scene. When he mentioned that he was the last person to see Savannah and that could make him look bad, the officers were quick to point out he had just told them he wasn't the last person to see Savannah, that the driver of the green pickup truck was. Oops. The detectives asked Lee about an injury to his neck, which he avoided answering and instead began talking about another injury on his arm from when he claimed he had self-harmed weeks earlier. The officers pointed out that both injuries looked fresh. 
Lee's story was unraveling. His details were so elaborate, but police let him talk, and for good reason. They knew something that he didn't know they knew. What police knew was that there was surveillance cameras in the area of the Bonefish Grill that had captured images of Savannah Gold the night she disappeared. So often, you hear these frustrating stories about cases where law enforcement attempts to obtain video surveillance from a business in order to investigate a crime or disappearance. And what happens? The footage has been erased, usually because it automatically deletes after a certain amount of time, or the camera malfunctions, or the necessary information is just out of view, or it's a fake camera there is a crime deterrent. This time, however, what was captured on that surveillance footage was what ultimately led to Lee Rodarte telling all. The surveillance footage did show Savannah pulling into the Bonefish Grill of around 5.30 Wednesday night. She walked over to Lee's car, and they spoke for about 15 minutes until she got into his back seat, just as he said. Lee then left the front seat of the car and joined Savannah in the back seat. What I care about is finding her. So where is she? I don't know where she is. Where is Savannah? I don't know. I need to know where Savannah is. So I, I don't let know Savannah where know. she is. You don't know because... You had something done with her, and you weren't involved in that part? No. I, I don't know. Tell me something. What can I work with? I told you the last time I saw her. But that's not true, because we have proof. We have, we have proof. And that's why we're sitting here, Lee. At this point, we need this for her. I mean, I look at that little girl, and I think of my little girl. My little girl who's her age. That's who I think about. That was my little girl. I couldn't imagine. I don't care what she said about you or whatever, but my little girl is that age. Uh, maybe, maybe. And you're not telling the truth. Maybe something gets out of hand in the car. I didn't do anything. Okay, you didn't okay. do anything, but she okay. was in your car. She never got out of your car. She, she never got, got out of your car, Lee. We're not saying that you did anything. I'm trying to find her. I didn't say you I did anything. I don't know anything. where she is. Well, we can prove that you left with her in the car. So please, do 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 everybody do a favor and just tell us. Where where is she? You know. you got to be able to to be able to separate. We're not sitting here saying you did anything to her. I, I don't know. She's on drugs. I, maybe she she passed. I don't I don't know. I I'm not in that car with you guys. I know that she's in that car with you. I have proof of all of this. Okay, let me ask you, Lee. Then tell us now if you're if you're being an honest man. Are you being honest? Yes. Okay. Well, let's start being honest. She never got out of your back seat, Lee. She never got out of your your back seat. Video cameras don't lie. Lee. How do you know? How do you how do you think I know this information, Lee? I wasn't there. But a video camera caught it. Tell me what happened. I don't know. After Lee got into the back seat, surveillance footage then showed the rear door of the car opening and shutting three times as if a struggle was going on inside. A little while later, you can see Lee exited the car and walked over to Savannah's car, where he opened her unlocked door, removed something, and returned to his Chevy. He then walked back to Savannah's car and appeared to do something to her tire. Finally, he returned to his own car before driving off. Savannah never left 
his back seat. I don't know where she is. Okay, where did you last drop her off at? I didn't drop her off. Okay, well then tell me. What happened? Where'd you guys go? We went to my house. Okay. We did some jokes. Okay. Hung out for a little. And then she said she was going to catch an Uber home. And did she call me for? She pulled her phone out. Looked like she was using it. I wasn't hovering over her. I was pretty high. So, I mean, I wasn't. She told me she was leaving. She walked out the door. What was going on in the back seat? What was going on in the back seat? For the doors to be kicked open. She kicked open that door three times, Lee. She kicked it. We saw it. And you know, and you know I'm not making it up because I wouldn't know this because I wasn't there. I would never know this unless we had video of it, correct? Yes, correct. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just a fact finder. We're not going to lie to you. That door kicked open three times. Obviously, something went on in that back seat. Talk, tell me about that. What happened in the back seat? Did she get mad at you? I mean, we've gotten arguments plenty of times where she says she doesn't care what happens or anything like that. But let's be honest. No one's going to go with some man willingly after all that. No, one, no one's going to do it. Please tell me where Savannah is. No. You do know. You do know, Lee. And right now is the time. You're so close, and I know, I know you're going to tell me. I know you are. After police laid out these details to Lee in the interrogation room, his demeanor changed from someone who was verbose in his details polite and eager to chit-chat, to a man that clammed up and began giving short answers in a hushed voice. In this interrogation video, you can see the wheels in Lee's head turning as the officers plead with him to let them know where Savannah is for her family. Finally, Lee breaks down and confesses. He told the officers that he killed Savannah in his car and then drove her to his home where he burned her body in his backyard, wrapped it in plastic, and then drove it to nearby Club Duclay Drive, a dead-end road, where he dumped the body into a retention pond. After Lee's confession, the officers left the room, and Lee was captured on video alone for a while, experiencing various levels of emotions, ranging from anguish to anger to fear. Lee is seen crying, going from frustration with himself to sadness, all over the realization that now that he's confessed, he's screwed. At one point, he told himself to stop crying and that he's going to get effing killed in jail. He continues talking to himself, saying, you're a real piece of shit. You were supposed to make something of your life. At one point, he appears to apologize to Savannah for what he did. But knowing that he was being watched, it's difficult to know if that part was genuine. Finally, he puts his chef's coat on and says, Last time you'll wear a chef's coat, he's very aware of what his future holds. 
Lee then led police to Savannah's body, which was in the water of the retention pond at the end of Club Duclay Drive, with burns over 75% of her body. Her body was recovered by the sheriff's office dive team, and an autopsy was done. While Lee Rodarty had the right to lawyer up and was advised of that right at the start of his interview, he declined and ultimately confessed. Now it was time to face charges. Lee Rodarty was charged with murder, abuse of a dead body, and tampering with evidence. Despite his confession, he pleaded not guilty to all three charges. Prosecutors were putting together the details, a narrative that showed Lee Rodarty had murdered Savannah Gold in the parking lot of the Bonefish Grill, then slashed her tire and stole her cell phone, using it to text her family to make it look like she had willingly taken off. The trial met many delays, some because of the defense that Lee's lawyers introduced, while other delays were pandemic-related. And as rough as such delays can be on families of victims, it was particularly excruciating for the Gold family. Since Savannah's death, Mom Sherry Gold's cancer came back twice, quite aggressively, and she prayed she'd be able to see her daughter's killer get justice. The controversial defense that Lee Rodarty and his attorneys were claiming was that Lee had acted in self-defense. Yes, you heard that right. Lee Rodarty, who was 5'11 and 163 pounds, was saying that in the backseat of his car on August 2nd, 2017, 5'1, 100-pound Savannah was so threatening to him that he feared for his life. Lee requested immunity using Florida's Stand Your Ground law, which states that, quote, a person who is not engaged in an unlawful activity and who is attacked in any other place where he or she has a right to be has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground and meet force with force, including deadly force, if he or she reasonably believes it is necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to themselves. You may recall that this was the same defense used by George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin murder, but that is another story for another day. Lee's version of events was that after Savannah got into his car, she became angry and slapped him in the face. According to Lee's lawyer, quote, in pain and fearing imminent seriously bodily harm, the defendant grabbed Miss Gold's neck. It was during this fight that Lee felt what he described as a pop sound in Savannah's neck. According to an article by Christopher Kahn, since Florida passed its law, there has been a 75% increase in justifiable homicide cases. That's a quote by Kenneth Nunn, an associate professor of law at the University of Florida, who's also an associate director of the Criminal Justice Center. Now, the court ultimately denied Lee immunity, understand your ground, a law which states that the party must believe it was necessary to use force to prevent death or great bodily harm. It is the burden of that party to provide sufficient evidence that there was an appropriate level of threat to their safety. The judge said that in this case, that evidence did not exist. And trial lawyer Nicholas Dorston said, quote, if someone is pushing you or punching you, it doesn't mean it's a death sentence for that person. 
Lee had said that Savannah was on heroin, a claim he continued to make while preparing for his defense, but a claim that was easily disproved when medical examiner Peter Gillespie, who had conducted the autopsy, testified that not only did Savannah have no drugs in her system, but she had no spinal fractures, also highlighting the lie Lee gave about the injury he gave her as part of his self-defense. Gillespie ruled the manner of death as homicide, but could not say for certain what the cause of death was. His belief was that the cause of death was strangulation. Without being granted immunity, in February 2021, Lee agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for a 40-year sentence. This saved Savannah's family the pain of having to sit through a trial. As part of the agreement, the charges of tampering with evidence and harming a dead body were dropped. In March 2021, Lee Radarty appeared in court to receive his official sentencing, and Savannah's father, mother, and brother all read heartbreaking victim impact statements, where they expressed their love and admiration for Savannah. Her brother Chris, older than her by six years, spoke so fondly of his little sister and how she would be right next to him when he was learning something that she would insist on learning too and then would excel at it. Savannah's father, Dan, spoke of being 13 years old and wanting one day to move to Florida from Maryland, where he could raise a family in warm weather without worrying about shoveling snow. Since the murder of his daughter, he has questioned a decision he made at age 13 every single day. And Savannah's mother, Sherry, spoke about how Savannah was robbed of so much of a career, marriage, and having a family. She spoke of how proud of her daughter she was, how she was so kind and thoughtful, but Savannah was no doormat. She was confident and independent, and Sherry loved her for that. Now, this is pure speculation, since as of this recording, Lee has not revealed the true motive behind Savannah's murder. We all know it wasn't self-defense. But based on the evidence, what is the most likely motive? This was a very impulsive move by Lee, who acted out of desperation. Whatever happened during that 15-minute conversation between him and Savannah in the parking lot of Bonefish Grill, and whatever occurred when she got into his car, he was out of control. He wasn't getting his way. This was a disorganized crime. He slashed her tire. Why? To make it look like someone was harassing her? But then he uses her cell phone to make it look like she left willingly? What story was he trying to tell or sell? That she was being attacked or that she left willingly? Something about their conversation led Lee to believe he was screwed, and as much of a liar as he is, there was some truth to the yarn he was spinning in the interrogation room in August 2017. He was clearly playing two women. He had his girlfriend at work and his girlfriend at home, and his worlds were colliding. Either he felt that Savannah was going to talk to his employer about their relationship, or he was in fear that his other girlfriend would find out the true nature of the relationship he had with Savannah. And as he began realizing that things were falling apart, that he had messed up and his unethical work relationship would jeopardize his career, he saw a future where he may have a difficult time making something of himself. He had worked his way up to culinary manager and wanted to continue to excel in the field. 
So how could someone come along and take that away from him? His frustration then leads to anger, his anger to violence, and ultimately, he strangled Savannah. I don't think he intended on killing Savannah the day he pulled into the parking lot. Now, of all the stupid decisions that Lee made, I just don't think murder in broad daylight was like his plan the whole time. But he did murder her, and his actions seem like that of someone who valued their own reputation and job over that of someone's life. And apparently, it runs in the family. Lee Radarti's sister, Amber Camarillo, is also a convicted murderer, in prison serving time for a murder she committed in 2016 in Florida. She had shot a woman outside a motel. To show their appreciation to the community for all of their support, Savannah's family held a memorial at one of her favorite places to spend her time, Lasco Regional Park in Jacksonville. There, those that loved Savannah could celebrate the life of the compassionate young woman that enriched all of their lives. There was flowers and lacrosse sticks reminding everyone of what Savannah had loved. Friends and family were encouraged to wear comfortable clothes to play a game of lacrosse. Between hearings and the sentencing, Savannah's family spent nearly 30 days in courtrooms, breathing the same air as her killer. Sitting beside them every time was an advocate for the Justice Coalition, whose mission is to advocate for innocent victims of violent crime and to work with law enforcement to make our communities safer. Check the show notes to learn how to support this worthy cause. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.